0: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Native American History. This is Samantha Williams, one of your hosts. And today we're joined by Jacqueline Emery, editor of Recovering Native American Writings in the Boarding School Press, which is published by the University of Nebraska Press. This book is the first... Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Native American History. This is Samantha Williams, one of your hosts, and today we're joined by Jacqueline Emery, editor of Recovering Native American Writings in the Boarding School Press, which is published by the University of Nebraska Press. This book is the first comprehensive collection of Native American writings published in boarding school newspapers in the late 19th century and early 20th centuries and speaks to the complexity of Native people's experiences at these institutions. Dr. Emery is an assistant professor of English at SUNY Old Westbury in New York, where she teaches courses on Native American literature, women's literature, and literature across cultures. Jacqueline, welcome and thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So just to start off, can you tell us a little bit about your research interests and your background?
1: Sure. So I earned my Ph.D. in English at Temple University, and my book builds on my dissertation, Writing Against Erasure, Native American Boarding School Students in the Periodical Press. Um, In addition to the uh, scholarship and teaching interests you mentioned, I also specialize in periodical studies. And I've published Essays in American Periodicals and Legacy, a Journal of American Women Writers.
0: Excellent. Now, before we dig too far into the book, can you tell our listeners a little bit about the Native American boarding school system in the United States, just to give us some context for the writings that you examine?
1: Absolutely. So most of the writings in the collection first appeared in newspapers that were published at off-reservation boarding schools. Um, In 1878, Hampton admitted its first class of Native Americans. These were newly released prisoners of war from Fort Marion in St. Augustine, Florida. And one year later, in 1879, Richard Henry Pratt founded the Carlisle Indian Industrial School in Pennsylvania, which became the prototype for federal off-reservation boarding schools across the U.S., and the aim of these schools was largely the same, uh, to provide Native American students with the teachings of civilization in the form of a practical vocational education. And so um, the first priority was to teach Native students how to speak, read, and write in English. And after uh, getting that uh, academic groundwork, they began to study subjects like math and geography and U.S. history. At the same time, uh, they were doing um, vocational work, uh, performing manual labor, and some students uh, gained experience working in the printing shops at these schools. And
0: those are some of the students that you profile in your book, Who's Writing to your Profile. Excellent. So, so your work focuses like you said specifically on the newspapers that are that were produced at these schools by native students. So can you talk a little bit about what types of writings were published in these newspapers and why boarding school officials permitted or even encouraged these publications and you know sort of a related question what sort of latitude did students have in publishing what they wanted.
1: So the collection features student-authored texts in a variety of genres, from personal letters and autobiographical essays to short stories. Um, It also features editorials written by students who edited newspapers like um, The School News, which was published at the Carlisle Indian Industrial School, and The Holocaust, which was published at... Seneca Indian School in what is now Oklahoma. It's difficult to say definitively <laughs> to mm-hmm. what extent students had latitude in terms sure. of what they were publishing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's very likely that all of the student edited newspapers were subject to strict editorial control and oversight. Um, And certainly the white edited newspapers were. My sense is that boarding school authorities encourage students to publish their writings in these newspapers and encourage them to edit uh, their own newspapers in order to demonstrate the success of their educational programs, Mm -hmm. um, because... Uh, the student writings themselves kind of served as evidence that the the educational experiments were assimilating Native Americans. But as I argue in the book, students use their English literacy in multiple ways, and they use these newspapers uh, not only to... Um, espouse the, the assimilationist rhetoric of the schools and the dominant culture more broadly, but in the uh-huh. service of Native communities and, and as a form of self-expression.
0: Well, that's interesting. So that's, you know, related to another question that I had about, you know, how widely these publications were read. And, you know, I realize it it depends, you know, on the publication, on the location, on the community, but, you know, while administrators may have wanted them to serve as sort of propaganda or proof mm-hmm. that their programs were working. I mean, it seems that they also were reaching out to other students, other members of indigenous nations. So, I mean, do you have a, a sense of who the audiences were for the students and who they were reaching?
1: So I've found um, evidence in the quarterly journal, journal of the society of American Indians that folks who were reading that uh, organ of the Society of American Indians were reading boarding school newspapers, so the editors and readers of that very prominent Native edited periodical um, were reading boarding school newspapers and often showcasing them in the pages of the Quarterly Journal or, uh, as it was later renamed, the American Indian Magazine. From time to time in the student-edited newspapers, there will appear um, uh, references to other student-edited newspapers. For example, in the there the editors note um, that they've read the school news, which was published at the Carlisle Indian School. So part of my purpose in the book is to is to not only make these uh, writings available and accessible, but also to start to suggest that there was a a larger um, periodical network. And um, they were the editors of these um, uh, native periodicals, specifically at the boarding school, but then also like the quarterly journal, they were reading each other's newspapers.
0: Interesting. So they're circulating, you know, amongst the different school editorial boards and, and newspaper um, groups. Mm-hmm. Do you did you find any evidence of them planning together or you know critiquing or anything like that?
1: Not critiquing. It's usually praising, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, which I think is, you know um, is wonderful in itself. Uh, to see that, yeah, yeah, I have to say that I that I as a researcher, I've paid more attention to reference cross references between and among the student edited newspapers than I have, say, in the White edited edited Carlisle uh, Indian Schools Indian Helper and any references it makes to um, student edited newspapers. Okay. I'd, okay, I'd be surprised if there were that many. I mean, certainly in the Carlisle papers, there are references from time to time to the school news, Mm -hmm. but um, I haven't found any references to other student-edited boarding school newspapers.
0: Okay, okay. Now, I'm wondering what, you know, in reviewing these writings, you know, what... What did they teach you and what can they teach those of us who've read the book or are going to read the book about students' boarding school experiences, you know, in terms of assimilationist practices or Indigenous responses? I mean, what what did you learn and and what will your readers learn from this collection?
1: Well, when I started this project, it was um, you know, again, I, I, I'm building on my dissertation, and so there was a chapter in my dissertation on talks and thoughts of the Hampton Indian students, the student-edited newspaper at Hampton um, Hampton Institute. Mm-hmm. And at the very beginnings of of that research, uh, that stage of my research, I when I would come across references to boarding school newspapers, they were usually there weren't that many, but when mm-hmm. I did find them, they were often talking about, uh, they categorized them and sort of wrote them off as these assimilationist mouthpieces mm-hmm. uh, for school authorities like Pratt, like Armstrong. Mm-hmm. And there wasn't a whole, and sometimes uh, there would be a mention of a student edited newspaper like Talks and Thoughts, but it too was lumped. Uh, together with these, with the white edited newspapers. okay, Um, And so they're all kind of talked about as if they're, you know, as if the students themselves, the student writers are merely mouthpieces, right. Mm -hmm. Um, Espousing the the assimilationist rhetoric of the boarding schools themselves. And so I wanted to see if (laughs) I had the same reading Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, there are there are certainly students whose writings are more in line with the assimilationist discourse of the period. Um, but there are other writings that um, I see making subtle challenges to that discourse, like the discourse mm. of the vanishing Indian, mm. or um, the the notion that uh, Native Americans are uncivilized. Savages, um, mm-hmm. and so the students are are taking some of this rhetoric and turning it on its head, and you know, to use Frederick Coxey's phrase, talking back mm-hmm. to, to their um, to their readers. And so, my hope is that uh, this collection will give um, readers. A deeper insight into the complicated, complex experiences of these student writers mm-hmm. um, and other Native American public intellectuals who published their writings in the boarding school press.
0: Were, were there any specific pieces of writing that really stood out to you in this regard? That you read them and you went, "Oh my goodness, this is completely, you know, counter." to previous readings of these publications.
1: Yeah. So Samuel Townsend, uh, he was a printer at Carlisle, and he was the first editor of its student newspaper, The School News. Um, he wrote a number of editorials that are, uh, are reprinted in the collection. And he would, uh, again, like take up the, the some of this language, um, challenging the notion that Native Americans are uncivilized, that they are, you know, inferior to whites. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time that he's doing that, you know, there there are moments when he relies on some of, of Pratt's rhetoric. You can kind of hear that uh, in his writing. But I think ultimately he's he's trying to challenge uh, white stereotypes of Native Americans and is effective in doing so, and using the newspaper as a platform for doing for doing hmm. that. Another writer and editor who stands out is Arizona Jackson. She was one of the founders of the Halaquah, printed at the Seneca Indian School, and that newspaper was launched in eighteen um, in eighteen seventy nine. Um, so it predates the school news.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, one of her letters, she had written a letter to a benefactor, which was common. Students often wrote letters to benefactors. But in her letter, she writes about her experiences as a college student. So she was attending Earlham College at the time, but still uh, working as an editor of the school newspaper um, back in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. And she writes about students um, from the college seeking out the Indian girl and wanting to know about the Indian girl. Hmm. Um, And she goes on to say how much, well, can I read just a little? That would be great. Yes, please. She talks about um, earning grades in the mid 80s and the 90s. um, And she represents herself as as a successful college student. She authorizes herself as a model student from the perspective of school authorities. And this goes back to your earlier question. Why would, why would school authorities give students the opportunity to publish uh, in these newspapers or to edit them? Mm -hmm. Um, And so she represents herself as a model student from their perspective, civilized, adept at writing in English and articulate and suggests that her physical presence at Earlham College challenges existing stereotypes of Indians as uneducable and uncivilized. And she writes, I found out that after I'd been here a day, the first of last term, whenever a student came, the first thing they sought was the Indian girl. Some of the girls came and asked me where she was and seemed to be surprised when I told them that I was the Indian girl. That shows that they saw me different from what they expected. So many that know nothing of Indians can't think of them in any other way than being savages, uncivilized, and anything but the right thing. And so I read this letter um, as... uh, Jackson's interest in redefining what it meant to be a young native American woman, um, and what it meant to be an educated native American woman and, and challenging some of these, these stereotypes. Um, I don't know how the letter ended up in the, in the issue of, um, the Carlisle, uh, the Carlisle newspaper. Mm -hmm. I don't know whether, um, the benefactor had, you know, sent the letter to Pratt or what, whatever, or or Jackson herself, but, uh, it does stand down. And it was one of those, um, discoveries in during the research process that, um, sort of made my day. Yeah, uh, I can imagine. Here was, here was a young woman who was, I was deeply interested in because she was this uh, founding editor and printer of um, a boarding her boarding school newspaper. And then she's writing this this letter in a Carlisle public that appears in a, pu- a Carlisle publication.
0: Well, I have to say, I loved Arizona Jackson's uh, portions of the book. She was one of my favorite characters The sort of, stood out to me, but, you know, the example of Arizona Jackson and also Samuel Townsend, I mean, they really sort of speak to the complexity of the environments that these students were operating in, you know, both during their education and after. And yeah, I think one of the things I really liked about this book was that, um, you know, you really sort of take on this complexity and you, you know, challenge uh, this the existence of an assimilation-resistance binary, which, you know, you say is largely dominated scholarship on boarding school narratives. And so, you know, in addition to, you know, these particular writings, I mean, how, how else would you say that, that that particular binary is really challenged by the work that you discovered over the course of putting this collection together?
1: I hope that it's going to encourage... Students and scholars to take a second look and a closer look at these writings, and certainly I'm not the first, right, to to challenge this binary mm-hmm. uh, and to and to suggest that uh, boarding school students were not passive victims, but were agents, right, and, right. and exerted their agency in multiple ways. But the fact that uh, there is this newspaper archive, I think, is remarkable.
0: Mm-hmm. So you you mentioned, and you, you um, kind of just spoke to that a little bit, that scholars have been slow to embrace boarding school newspapers as part of the broader canon of Native American literature. And, you know, a part of that you may have already answered about, you know, whether assuming that it was just assimilationist rhetoric that was being shared by these students. But, you know, why, if you could speak a little bit more about why you think these These writings have not really been you know examined very closely before, and why you think that they're really an important part of Native American literature?
1: One of the reasons is that there is a privileging of the book in Native American literary studies. Um, and so uh, that's starting to change, and um, scholars are beginning to embrace periodicals. In mm-hmm. Native American literary studies, I'm thinking here of um, the recent work done by Carrie Carpenter and Carolyn Cericio on um, Sarah Mucca Hopkins. Mm, okay, the privileging of the book um, is one of those is one of the reasons, but I also think again, scholars have you know been been reluctant to take up. These newspapers, because they've looked at them as um, vehicles for the assimilationist mm. aims of the boarding schools. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly they were um, propaganda in a lot of ways, but that's not all that they were.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, school authorities, again, wanted to publish native writings, specifically boarding school student writings.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: To, to serve as, as proof of the, the power of their, the, the success of their schools. But that's, that's not it. That's not all. That's not the full, the full story. Sure, sure. What do you
0: think they contribute overall to sort of the canon of Native American literature?
1: I think they allow us to look at some of the, the parallels um and trace some of those parallels but also some of the divergences between boarding school narratives that were published um You know, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, as well as more contemporary Native American works um, that explore the legacy of the boarding school. So, for instance, Sherman Alexie's The Absolutely True Diary of a Mm -hmm. Part-Time Indian, Mm -hmm. uh, which uh, invokes the boarding school legacy and the Carlisle Indian School specifically um by putting some of these um the writings in the collection and dialogue with a text like that that's widely known Mm -hmm, and read, mm -hmm. I think it can enhance um readers understanding of the boarding school experience and why it pers why that legacy persists, why why a writer like Alexi or like Louise Erdrich uh is returning to this theme Mm -hmm. um in their in their work.
0: So maybe a more holistic understanding picture.
1: Of... I think so. I mean, uh, I every spring I teach a course on Native American literature. Most of the students who take my course have had very little to no exposure to Native American literature, and uh, I open the course with Alexi's young adult novel and. Use that as a, as a starting place, as a, as a framing device to get into this history. And students are often surprised that there were these boarding schools. They had no idea that they existed. In fact, I had no idea that they existed until I was in graduate school.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So I think uh, we can do a lot more to bring attention to this part of our history and, um, certainly this, uh, you know, this theme, this legacy in Native American literature. So are these writings,
0: are these uh, things that you include when you teach Native American literature and how do you integrate, um, if you do, if you do integrate them, how do you integrate them into, um, your syllabus or into, you know, overall how you're teaching Native American literature?
1: So I've taught, uh, excerpts, uh, from the book in my classes and I use them as a way to give students some historical context. Okay. Um, but also context for understanding a writer like Sherman Alexie, um, and why he's dramatizing in his, in his novel, this, um, you know, interaction between a white teacher, Mr. P and, this young uh, native student I uh, I intend to teach the entire book and I'm re- revising my syllabus for the spring semester. Mm. I want to focus on the boarding school so in the past i've I've ba- I've taught Coming of age narratives in my Native American literature course. Okay, um, and so I followed up Alex- Alexi with Zikala Shah's autobiographical essays uh, on her boarding school experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this coming semester, um, I haven't quite. Figure, figured out the syllabus mm-hmm. um, but my plan is to focus specifically on the boarding school experience because I think there's um, more that I can do than I have done in the past hmm. um, it's been it's been a, a focus a focus of the of the course but um, I, I'd like to dig deeper into to it uh, and have students gain a, a deeper understanding of the complexities. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, of the, one of the excerpts that I taught last spring was um, uh, Zikhala, the excerpts from Zicala Shah's autobiographical essays that were print, reprinted in the Red Man. Mm-hmm. And I, I wanted students to see how her writings were, um, were misrepresented in the red man and, uh, to give them some context over how difficult it was for a writer like Zikala, even someone like Zikala Shah, Mm -hmm. um, to be published in the boarding school papers and to have her, her writing, uh, represented with (laughs) integrity. Right, right. Uh, Because it was, it was, you know, there were parts of it that were omitted and, um, and there were no, no notes, um, no editorial notes to, to suggest that that had happened.
0: Oh, interesting. And when you've taught excerpts from the book or use some of these essays, how do students respond? I mean, do they feel, you know, a connection, you know, to these students, to these writings, you know, maybe through partially being the same age or just also being students? I mean, do you find that to be an effective way to teach about these schools?
1: I do. I find that students, um, in my classes are, uh, they have a very, um, developed sense of racial injustice. Um, but the, the challenge is to get them to understand the injustices done to Native Americans. Mm. So, um, you know they, they can see um, connections to Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. Um, you know current current movements sure. uh, like that uh, in the black in the black community. Um, but when it comes to Native Americans, they again they don't have a lot of a lot of knowledge, a lot of background uh, background knowledge. Mm-hmm. And so part of what I do in that class is just give them, um, some, some context, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. some ways to see, um, you know, the, the, the issues that Zikala Shah and Charles Eastman and the, the, the students featured in the collection, those issues that they were working out, um, in their writings pertain to. Um, and are in dialogue with some of the same issues that, um, black public intellectuals of the period were hashing out in their writing. So I try to make like cross-cultural, um, connections as much as I can mm-hmm. and I find that that helps students begin to understand what, what, um, Native American writers were up against, uh, why they were taking on these issues, why they were s- so often writing about education, for instance, mm-hmm. in their, in their respective works.
0: So it sounds like you do a lot of history teaching as well. It's yes. like <laughs> context is important, you know, and if they don't have that context, I can see how that would be, that would be necessary. You know, something you have to spend a lot of time on.
1: Absolutely.
0: So in terms of the book itself, I'm always really interested in how authors put their books together. And in this case, um, you have assembled so many different writings and you have gone into archives that are often incomplete. And I'm curious, you know, what was your methodology in assembling these writings, how you chose them, why, uh, what challenges you faced in collecting and gathering all of these primary sources? If we could talk about that, that would be, that would be great.
1: Sure. So, I mined roughly 15 boarding school newspapers, but ended up using about 12 of them. So, I had to rule a few out um, in part because I couldn't access them. Um, uh, they no longer exist, or if they do exist, they exist in a very limited form. Mm. Um, I was also looking in, in terms of choosing the students I wanted to feature in the collection. I looked specifically for students who um, were editors or contributed multiple writings um, and substantive writings. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I ruled out like, uh, you know, very short compositions of, of a paragraph or two, unless it was something that I thought was, was really interesting. And uh, I really, from the beginning, I wanted to represent a diversity of forms. So I knew that I wanted to include editorials and essays and short stories. One of the challenges, again, was just, accessing these, um, archives and the heartbreak (laughs) that I still feel. And so every visit I would have with the archives was sometimes difficult because they would, they, they literally crumble in my hands. So
0: a lot of these items are not well preserved either.
1: They're, they're not. And if they do, if they, if they have been I think we're you know I think we're fortunate for mm-hmm. the ones that have been preserved but but they uh some of them are in in desperate need of of being digitized or yeah. or something because i I fear um, that they could be lost sure. Forever,
0: where uh, which archives did you visit to find these sources? Because it's I know the the boarding schools themselves don't have archives, and sometimes it's at you know national archives. So where did you where did you end up finding a lot of these items?
1: I did a lot of my research at the New York Public Library. The New York Public Library, the main branch, has one of the most comprehensive runs of talks and thoughts of the Hampton Indian students. Interesting. Yeah, uh, and it also has a number of other uh, Carlisle publications. So I've, I've been fortunate enough to be able to visit the New York Public Library. At, uh, when I started the project, I was living in Philadelphia, and now I live in the city. Mm. Um, I also made a trip to Carlisle and went to the Historical Society, um, and I did some research uh, there um, and then at the uh, anthropology library in Washington DC. Those are my three main uh, archives that I, that I visited in person. Mm-hmm. And then I um, utilized the archives at the uh, Oklahoma historical society. Yeah. Those were the, those were the main ones for the most part. I was able to successfully get my hands on the writings that I wanted. There were some along the way that I just could not could not get a hold of. Um, some of the earlier issues of Talks and Thoughts, for instance, um, the ones in which Angel Decora edited while she was a student at Hampton Institute. Uh, to my knowledge, those Early issues have not been preserved. Oh gosh,
0: that's such a shame too, isn't it? Mm -hmm. But we're lucky that we have all these sources together now in your book, which is an amazing resource. Now, I'm curious if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about the process of revising your dissertation into a book. (laughs) How does that work? How did that work for you?
1: I used some of the content from the introduction and the first chapter of my dissertation for the first, for the introduction to the book. The second chapter of my dissertation was on talks and thoughts of the Hampton Indian students Mm -hmm. and the school news. I forgot to say that earlier. Sure. Uh, And so what I did was i used I used my research for the dissertation specifically on those two um, the two student edited periodicals as like a jumping off place for the book. Uh, I went back and I looked for additional writers who I could feature um, and um, my research for the dissertation also helped in the sense that I had familiarized myself with the white edited newspapers, uh, namely those published at Hampton and Carlisle. And so, um, I knew some of the, the prominent literary figures who were featured in those newspapers. And then I, I also started to look for students as well. How long does that process take? I don't like to think about it. Um, (laughs) I think that says enough right there. (laughs) It was a a long process. And, you know, I was teaching and so I wasn't working steadily, Mm -hmm. but using whatever, whatever moments I could um, to conduct the research and to transcribe and, um, you know, figure out, figure out which, which writers I wanted to mm-hmm. include. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I have just one more question before I let you go. Um, you know, with regard to the book, you know, and you talked a little bit about the sources that you were unable to use for the this particular project. How do you hope that students and scholars might build upon your work and what sorts of future projects do you hope um, might come out of this collection that you have published?
1: Well, my hope is that the collection will encourage further scholarly investigation into boarding school newspapers and other Native American uh, periodical archives. I'd like to see these newspapers preserved and accessible Mm -hmm. in a digital format. That would be great. Um, one of my next projects in the spring is to participate in a digital poster session at the American antiquarian society. And so I want to highlight, uh, the Holocaust and, um, share, share my research, um, with, um, other scholars, periodical scholars who are, who are working with, um, ethnic, Mm -hmm. ethnic newspapers. Excellent. Well, Jacqueline, thank you so much for
0: speaking with me today. It was such a pleasure.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Jacqueline Emery's book, Recovering Native American Writings in the Boarding School Press is published by the University of Nebraska Press.